just past 7 o'clock. Getting excited. Huge show on tap, as we do very often on Monday nights. It's time for Iron Sports. 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Um, Iron, we've got so much to get into tonight, and I want to talk about a lot of things. But is it just me, or is this the year of the missed kick? I feel like... There's no there's no kicker in the league that I think is going to hit anything anymore, especially with a lot of pressure on the line. It seems like you're, you're, anything outside a 30-yarder is like a 50-50 this year, and the stats actually back it up. This has been the least accurate kicking season ever. Well, I was at the Cleveland game. I got there about an hour and a half early, and the people who are first there are the kickers. And I was watching Boswell for the Steelers and the Cleveland kicker, and they were missing left and right during the. And I texted out to you. I said the kickers are not making anything. Like it's not like they're just missing one or two. Like they're hitting four or five kicks in a row that are all over the place. And then what happens during the game? They Boswell both, misses. They, they both miss field goals. <laughs> it's it's been ridiculous. Just the fact that I mean, yesterday there was half a dozen. Kicks inside 40, important kicks, and that just missed completely. It's just been a really weird year in, in that sense. Um, coming up, Kurt Sampson's going to join us. He's the author of Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. That's at 730. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Kurt? Well, Kurt's wrote a book about Ben Hogan. He wrote a book on the Masters. It's about 18 books, most of them golf books. And he wrote a great book about the, of what Tiger Woods is, the comeback of Tiger Woods winning the Masters. Uh, excellent read, and I can't wait to have him on. Yeah, it's uh, he's written a lot of good golf books, so we'll talk more about that with Kurt Sampson at 730 here on Iron Sports. Okay, Ira, same thing we do every week. Where have you been? I know this was a busy one. Uh, very busy. I went to two two Robert Morris basketball games, but mainly I went to Steelers Browns on Thursday night, and then I went to the Steeler. I went to the Penn State Indiana game on Saturday in Penn State. But I was a Steeler Brown in Cleveland for that game. Let's talk about Robert Morris. Obviously, we've had um, Mike Isolino, uh, the coach there. He's a good friend of Iron Sports. We have something college uh, basketball related. We go to him, but you got an interesting picture of an athlete in the stands that I would not have thought was coming. Well, Juju, he but Juju Smith Schuster doesn't just go to. Robert Morris games because he go, he's attending Robert Morris in a, in a program to get an extra degree, but he actually shows up at high school games on his off <laughs> days. So it's a, on a Tuesday nights when they don't when the Steelers are off, he tends to go to somewhere in Pittsburgh. He is so popular; people do not realize how. I mean, there's nobody has anything bad to say about Juju Smith-Schuster. He is one of the most popular at his age player ever in the history of Pittsburgh. Yeah, he's just kind of hanging out, you know, like like one of the guys. You know and, what I mean? He sits the right, there's no in the student section, dresses like Robert Morris, but I've seen him at Pitt games. Games doing that. I've seen there's pictures of him at a high school basketball game, at high school football mm-hmm. games. I mean, on Tuesday, but they had like a Tuesday football game. And he went to he he is just just loves being in Pittsburgh, and people in Pittsburgh love him. And um, you can see you know all of Ira's antics and shenanigans on Instagram. It's at Ira on Sports. Um, so let's talk about Steelers and Browns. And this is a game that. I really didn't learn anything about either team. I may have learned that Mason Rudolph is not an NFL-caliber starting quarterback. I may have learned that he got his head hurt. (laughs) Um, But I didn't learn anything about the Browns. It was kind of just an ugly win all around. But let's first talk about getting there. This was not your first time um, attending a game in Cleveland. But tell us about your experience. Well, I think the the takeaway from the whole situation is Baker Mayfield— I think is overrated. The Browns' play calling is ridiculous. They have no clue what they're doing. Mason Rudolph is not going to be Ben's successor. The Brown fans are much nicer. They've improved since the last time I was there, and I like the like the I like the Cleveland Brown Stadium. If it's called First Energy Stadium, uh, short of that, those that's the short points. But I was 
really, there's when you go to the Browns game, there's no atmosphere around the stadium. They put the stadium on the other side of a highway, of like of, of an interstate. So there's like roads, and then on the other mm-hmm. side is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So there's not really people in tailgates, parking. There's like manicured fields. It's a weird stadium. So you, like, you have to park a mile away downtown and walk. So there really isn't that atmosphere to get in there. Uh, but I did, I was waiting for people. The last time I was at the, at a, at the Browns game, about six years ago, people were screaming and yelling, and it was it was very Eagles like. I got I was impressed. I didn't get nothing. There was nobody. And I talked to other mm-hmm. Steelers fans who were like, I don't know what happened. Maybe the Browns <laughs> became nice. I don't know. Maybe they're better. I don't know whatever happened, but everyone was nice. It was like a normal football game. And I didn't and and especially after the fight at the end of the That's game. Made me you would expect it. I yeah. even waited. I didn't just rush out. And I expected there would have been fights in the stands. There was no fights in the stands. And there were plenty of Steeler fans there. And you didn't see, hear about anything like that. I was very impressed with how that was done. And and so I think it was from the perspective of of the stadium. I like the stadium. It has on the end zones two levels of like in a box, like there's a two level end zone, mm-hmm. and but it's it, it almost is like orchestra seats or whatever. I'm not trying to say like when you're at a play because it like goes straight up, mm-hmm. and it's like you feel like you're in a box, and I think the sound stays in. But that's why the wind is so whipping around because you're next to the lake, and the wind gets in there and it just goes around. You're just like, which way is the wind going? It's not really going anywhere. It's going in <laughs> all different circles. And uh, the club area was great. They have all the food, a lot of room there, and then even downtown, down down on the the first level, there's a lot of bars and restaurants that you can go inside, not where your seats are. Now, there's no um, center like Heinz, Heinz Field has a special area where just the Steelers, like everything with the Hall of Fame and all Steelers stuff, they don't have that, so it's a little bland. But it's still a great stadium. I really like it. I wish there was an atmosphere around it, but I, I like being in the stadium. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, the game itself? Because like you said, you, you're if you weren't sold on Baker Mayfield before this, you're definitely not after this. No, I mean— they, his first pass to Beckham was a laser, 42 yards. They went up 7 nothing on him. It was, he was down at the one-yard line. But after that, they really—it was like they made one—he made one other pass the rest of the game. I just felt like he was missing his wide receivers. He was off on a lot of passes. And and the what I saw, what he did crazy, is that he would always turn his back. And you don't see it as much on television, but he would turn his back on the whole field, like on the defense coming. And sometimes he would, like, go to the right side, but all his receivers were on the left— and he'd look around and like there's no one to throw to. Like you have mm-hmm. nobody on the right side to throw to. So why would he turn that way? And he was always turning his back. I did not did not think he was accurate. And I just felt like he just didn't have great. I mean, he was going against Mason Rudolph, who looked horrendous. But I was not <laughs> being there. And then also the play calling. I do not understand what Cleveland is doing. On every time they had like third and seven, third and eight. Oh, let's throw a 30, 40 yard bomb. You have Odo Beckham Jr. You have Jarvis Landry. You have Kareem Hunt. You have guys that you just get, get them five yards. They're going to take it, make it a 10, 15-yard play. And they're good across the middle of catching. Why don't you just get the first downs? I mean, Cleveland, so many times, the Steelers, the entire game was like, Mason's throwing interceptions. They're going on a fourth down. They're not converting. And the Browns keep getting the ball in Steeler territory, needing like two first downs to get a field goal or maybe three, you know, score a touchdown. And instead, they would just try long bombs. And it was windy. And Mayfield's not accurate. I do not. This their play calling with Freddie Kitchens is horrendous, but I did, I thought Baker's not even accurate. You, you know, that's what, what was making me think that as well, though, is that they the Steelers were trying to give them the game with all the turnovers, and it just seemed like... It, 
it wasn't until the game was basically over, until there was 30 seconds left, you're like, I guess the Steelers can't come back. That's how um, inept Cleveland looked, that you never really thought they were going to put this game out of reach, and they really didn't. I mean, up until the last, you know, two drives, there was a chance for Pittsburgh to come back and tie the game. They weren't going to with, with Mason Rudolph. No, I mean, and, and, and the cheap shots, like, the Steelers at one point had no wide receivers. I mean, they were totally knocked out. I mean, the, the Greedy Williams uh, hit on Juju Smith-Schuster was, was hard. I mean, he, he came in with his head. He hit Juju. Juju got knocked around. And then his head hit Morgan Burnett's head, uh, helmet also. So they were two helmets to helmet hits at the same time. Juju was out on the field. Mm-hmm. I was sitting right above him where that happened. He wasn't even moving. And they took him out. And then a few plays later, DeAndre Johnson, their other wide, wide receiver, gets knocked out by Demarius Randall, which that hit, he was ejected for the game. But he was like a missile. I mean, I saw Demarius Randall come. Like, I'm watching him. I'm like, he's going to lead with his head the entire time. And right into Demar- to DeAndre Johnson, who then he ended up saying he's bleeding from his ear. I mean, he was knocked out, too. Mm-hmm. So I was like waiting for more fights. Like, everything, that's what people are talking about, the fight at the end of the game. A lot during the game precipitated that. Those two hard hits, knocking out the two wide receivers of the Steelers, I think led into what was going on. I mean, there was a guy behind me that kept saying, cheater, cheater. It's the only bad thing I heard the whole game. He kept screaming cheater the entire game until <laughs> Juju got knocked out. And he realized that that was a terrible hit. And then he stopped saying it. I don't know what why he shut up about it. You may have not noticed because you were there, but yeah, he was bleeding pretty heavily from his ear as they walked um, Deontay Johnson off the field. It, it, it did not look good. I'm surprised there was no kind of suspension or fine here. Uh, no, I, I think because they were too busy worrying about the fight yeah. after the game, not to that hit was. I've gone to a lot of football games. One of the worst hits I've ever seen at a football game, maybe the worst that I've seen in person. But I got to give the Steeler defense credit because they were hanging in there too. As much as defense Baker Mayfield, uh, uh, T.J. Watt, uh, uh, t- tremendous uh, linebacker getting sacks. Bud Dupree, forty-eight. Uh, Devin Bush, fifty-five. I mean, the Steelers, uh, Mika Fitzpatrick, the entire team. Their defense is just. This is a Super Bowl level defense. I wish we had this defense when we had Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell. <laughs> Then, like then we would have won two Super Bowls, but it was just uh, it, they just the defense played great, but it was just it was just a mess in terms of uh, uh, they they just could not Mason Rudolph is we talked about this, is when he is in the pocket, there's no one around him, he'll make a beautiful pass. But when he's pressured, disaster. He's throwing the ball. He's not, it's, he's inaccurate. He actually throws the ball with less velocity when he's being pressured. He mm-hmm. doesn't even get, he, and I think maybe it's since the concussion, but he didn't look good at all. And, and, you know, the Steelers have a good offensive line. Imagine if he was on a team like Houston, you know, where that had to be uh, Deshaun Watson week, week to week trying to make moves. It just didn't look good. This was a, an indictment on, on his ability going forward. It's probably going to uh, push him back to backup status as if we didn't know that already. Um, anything else from the game you want to talk about? Well, I, I do want to talk about the, the fight. fight. Let's yeah. talk, let's, so the point is that after, so it's 21-7, the Steelers just could not mount anything. I mean, at point, there was, a, there was a point, but then the Browns finally got a drive there at the end of the game uh, and, and were able to take the, to the touchdown 21-7 and sort of put the Steelers out of the misery. They did get the ball with a minute 40 left, 21-7. Um, first, Rudolph goes back. He sacked for 10 yards. And it was like one of those things where it looks like the Steelers offensive line is like, it's cold, we're going to go home, we're down 14 points, we have no timeouts, it's like over. Then he goes back again, he sacked nine more yards. So now it's third and 29 with 14 seconds left. At that point, I really felt like the Steelers should just run it out. Like there was no point, like to, like just end the game. What's the mm-hmm. purpose of it? Because clearly they're not blocking. The Browns were just rushing everything. And he goes back, and I'm just like, oh, don't do that. But then they blitzed again. That's where Miles Garrett came in. Now, Miles Garrett, that, ta- that sack 
was a was a p- fine penalty and a penalty and a fine itself because you can't just land your whole body weight on Mason Rudolph. So he lands on Rudolph, and and from what I looked, I watched this a million times. It does look like his hand, Rudolph's hands, went in Mason Rudolph's helmets. I mean, yeah. I mean, Miles Garrett's helmet. So he's trying to get his helmet off. Rudolph, I mean, Garrett is la- lying on Rudolph. I, every, I mean, Rudolph got a thirty-five thousand dollar fine. I don't know if she got a thirty-five thousand. I think Garrett, who weighs a lot more than him, was on top of him, not letting him get up, and and not even letting him get his hand out. And then he goes and he takes Rudolph's helmet off. And then, <laughs> but then people are saying, "Is well, I've seen that again." But a lot of times they take the helmet off. I've seen that, but then they drop it. But then Garrett was holding the helmet. So what was he doing holding the helmet? Like, oh, he didn't know what he was doing with the helmet. Of course he knew. Because oh, when knew. De Castro and and Pouncey were trying to restrain him, he's still holding the helmet. Like, why is he holding the helmet? Then he sees Rudolph come over again. Which is just to get his helmet or whatever to cause. That's why he got the fine. And then he pounds Rudolph. And the the pictures are look bad. It looked like Rudolph looked like he got hit hard mm-hmm. with that helmet. And then like that was disaster at that point in terms of everybody. It was <laughs> I couldn't believe they even made the finish the game. There was like two seconds left, yeah, right. and they still had to run another play. It was a mess. It was I it just a mess. Like totally a mess at the end. But. The Pouncey's going to be suspended. The Steeler, uh, he was kicking Rudolph. He, he was kicking, kicking him down. Yeah, yeah, kicking that, and he deserved that. Uh, he deserved the three games. But Garrett, I, I, be, I, yeah, he should be suspended for the rest of the year, and I think he should be suspended eight games for next year. I mean, that you cannot have on the field players grabbing other people's helmet and banging them off to over the head. I mean, it's like professional wrestling. <laughs> well, the, I think they may do something for next year because they, they have said this is an ind- indefinite suspension, right? So there could still be something tacked on next year, right? Yeah, and I had we're going to have Dan Wallach on uh, sports. Attorney who we had on about talking about gambling a couple times in the show, and he's going to talk about because a lot of people are texting me. Well, can Garrett be arrested and those things? And and they're, the only interesting thing, if you look at these cases about getting players, it's usually the hockey where they take the stick and mm-hmm. they're using something or they're using a foreign object. So technically, that that was in the realm because as they usually nobody gets arrested for fights or punching or or hits during the game or anything like that. But actually taking a foreign object like that could could have meant something. But I I was. Look, I was upset. I mean, what Garrett did. But, you know, it's all taking away about that Mason Rudolph played terrible. I mean, the fact is that Mason Rudolph is not the successor to Ben Rotzenberger. They're going to have to get another quarterback. That's what is worse than the fact that Garrett did this to Rudolph and all the other things that happened. But uh, that's what people want to talk about. It's 718. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. At 730, author of Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods, Kurt Sampson, is going to join us here. Um, Ira, let's shift gears to NCAA football. Your Penn State Nittany Lions, um, they got another win, and but they're really getting ready for Ohio State, I would think. Well, Indiana is not your father and mother's Indiana. This no. team, this Tom Allen has done a great job. They're seven. They're seven three now. It's the first time that they've been ranked since nineteen ninety three. Uh, Penn State's twenty one and one against them, uh, or now twenty two and one. But uh, back in nineteen ninety four, they actually cost Penn State a national championship because Penn State was ranked number one and Nebraska was ranked number two. Penn State was playing. I was watching the game, and at the last second, last twenty five seconds, they scored two touchdowns, and so the they, Penn State only won by seven instead of twenty one, and they the. The pollsters moved Nebraska ahead of Penn State, and that's a team with Kajana Carter and and Kerry Collins. Mm-hmm. And then they never passed Nebraska. They won the they won the Rose Bowl. They were undefeated. They didn't lose to anyone, and that cost them the chance to win the national championship. So I'm always mad about Indiana. <laughs> but um, but Indiana, Penn State did not look good on defense. They shredded Penn State on all. They had 371 yards passing uh, on, on on Penn State. And Clifford for Penn State, the quarterback who I thought had played well, just did not look good passing. He ran well, 10 carries for 55 yards. And, and converted some good third downs. But if it wasn't for his running, I, we, Penn State would have just been, uh, it, would, it would have been a mess. I mean, we're, uh, Penn State was up 17-14, and, 
and and, there were, and and Clifford made a terrible fumble, and they're lucky that Indi- Indiana fumbled the ball right back uh, next time. But it was uh, it was at one point he had one play that he threw the ball over the middle. It was it's just the pass just sailed on him. I think it was he's saying that they said it was a receiver ran the wrong route, but I think it just sailed. It was like directly down the middle. They called intentional grounding. Like there was no one around him. He just threw a bad pass. Like it's an embarrassment to say intentional grounding when you're just throwing a normal pass. But the um, funny thing was in the second half, Indiana it's still close game. They try a fake punt on a fourth and one and stopped. I thought on their own 42. That was a disaster. And that's when Journey Brown for Penn State ran in and made it 27-14. And you thought like it's under control, but Penn State's defense just could not hold them back. Mm. And that concerns me. When you look at the line next week against Ohio State, 18 points. That's a lot of The points. reason is that Penn State's defense, which was coming into the Minnesota game and the Indiana game, is one of the best defenses in the country, looks like paper mache to some extent. And so I think people are very concerned whether they can, they can hang on. And, and Penn State's offense the last drive, they had an 18-play, 75-yard drive, nine minutes. It was sort of reminiscent of, uh, of, of, the, of the Eagles drive in that first the Eagles-Patriots game. But 18-play, 75-yard drive, and they were converted two fourth downs, and then they scored, and that sort of like sealed the deal at 34-24. But it was, it was a lot closer than people expected, and uh, I just, I'm nervous for Penn State going against the Ohio State game. It's crazy how you can lose to a team that's decent, and beat a team that's decent, but just not beat them by enough. And it causes vague to be that scared. 18 and a half is a lot of points between team number three in the country and team number nine in the country. Amazing. Amazing. It's ridiculous. So we always talk about the, the games of the week here on I Run Sports, and we got two of them uh, this week. First one was Georgia and Auburn, and this was a game that we were all looking forward to. I was looking forward to it. Now, I, I watched this the Penn State game, and luckily it got over fast, so I was able to rush and go watch all the, the football, so I caught this game like in the second quarter. Georgia's up 21 nothing. You think it's they're just cruising along. But Bo Nix, I keep talking about this Bo Nix guy for Auburn. He He's he tries. He's good. I mean, he let his team back down. He was making some great passes there at the end, and uh, and they scored two touchdowns. And they actually, in the fourth quarter, uh, he scored had two touchdowns in the fourth quarter and one the, the first touchdown Georgia allowed on the ground all year, which is shocking. And they got it down to the thirty-four on a fourth and two, and he threw an incomplete pass. But uh, I look, Jake Fromm for Georgia. Everybody thought was going to be the star play. He was thirteen for twenty-eight, hundred and ten yards. I mean, I don't think he looks. He looked good. I thought Georgia was just 3-15 and 15 on third down. And now Georgia clinched the East and the SEC, but if, they don't seem to be like a team that's going to beat LSU. <laughs> so I, everyone no. thinks that one of the scenarios is Georgia beating LSU. But if you looked at the eye test, and if two was with Alabama, there's no way that someone could say that Georgia is better than Alabama. No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, so I, I don't think anyone expected this to be the game it was, but it ended up being the, the, the darling of Saturday. It was Oklahoma and Baylor, and it reminded us of the Super Bowl two years ago. <laughs> Well, Baylor was well amazing that Oklahoma was down twenty eight three, and it was in the middle of the second beginning of the second quarter when they're down twenty eight three because they were fumbling interceptions, just a disaster. It was thirty one ten at halftime, but I got but Baylor like this is the problem with these teams that are very aggressive and they just know one way to play, and then they try to slow it down. Like they got their lead, they got their lead too early, like a, like a horse horse running too fast mm-hmm. in a race, and they couldn't hold the lead. And Jalen Hurts was just amazing. I mean, Jalen Hurts I, the stat of this game are crazy. Jalen Hurts threw 30 for 42 for 300 300 yards for Oklahoma quarterback. Four touchdowns and one interception. But he lost two fumbles. One in the end zone. But not only did he throw the ball 42 times, he ran the ball 
27 times. Crazy. Like, nobody else even did anything. <laughs> it was just Jalen Hurts show. But Brewer, the quarterback for Baylor, he threw the ball 29 times and ran the ball 17 times. It was just between Brewer and, and Hurt the whole time. But that second half was crazy. At one point in the second half, it, the, Baylor had run five plays and Oklahoma ran 36 because Baylor was turning the ball mm. over, going three and out. And it was just like, but Oklahoma, in the end, if you look at the final stats, they had 34 first downs. They had to Baylor's 18 and 535 yards to Baylor's 307. But uh, it was, they, they just, they, 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 Oklahoma took the lead at 31-31. They got a field goal, and Baylor had a chance. I mean, they drove down to the 40-yard line, but then uh, Brewer threw another interception. But it was a great game, great comeback. But it's like one of those games, it's 23, and you're like, Oklahoma, is, they're explosive. They could come back. And they, they didn't have C.D. Lamb, their top wide receiver. Mm-hmm. But it's a win where now what does this mean? Baylor now has that one loss. Oklahoma's a one loss. They're probably going to meet in the Big 12 championship game. So the loser is going to have two losses. And this is going to set up in terms of the winner of that game is going to – the winner of that game is going to say, oh, I think I should be the fourth team of in the playoffs. <laughs> um, let's move on to the number one team in the country and – who is probably going to be your Heisman Trophy winner, um, Joe Burrow, after another great performance for LSU. Well, they were up 28 nothing, and I think their defense just fell asleep because they just... But John Reese Plumley for Mississippi, <laughs> he had runs of 46, 65. And I was, I'm watching the game. I'm like, am I watching the same play or is there a re- or replays? 46, 65, and 35-yard runs against him. He had four touchdowns. He had 212 yards rushing, four touchdowns, and he, they hung in the game, well, down like 20-some points. Yeah. So they were still sort of like two scores back at one point point, but Burrow threw for almost 500 yards, five touchdowns, two bad interceptions against, so he had the interceptions against uh, uh, Alabama, then two interceptions in this game, but it was still uh, just a total, I mean, it was a win at Ole Miss, and I expected a letdown from LSU after the win against Alabama, but they really jumped out that lead. The letdown was in the second half when they sort of let the pedal off the metal. So Alabama hammered uh, Mississippi State, which we saw coming, but we probably didn't see uh, Tua Tagovailoa probably playing his last snaps at Alabama. Well, I mean, that's a game. Fort, he was through for 256 yards, two touchdowns. They were up 35-7. Everyone thought the game, like uh, Nick Saban said, I was taking him out. He was going to run. This was still in the first half. And he came back for a series, and he got ta- he got sacked right on his hip. And he got a dislocated hip, which is really serious. I mean, it looks like, I mean, I'm old enough Didn't to watch Bo when, Jackson when Bo Jackson. Yeah. Hey, but Bo Jackson got avascular necrosis in his hip, which means that there's no blood supply. So he actually lost his hip. As long as he has blood, he just has a di- dislocated hip. And as long as he has the blood supply, then that his hip should come back in, as strong as ever. Now, C.J. Mosley for the Alabama two year, three years ago had the same problem had a dislocated really? hit and he's now playing in the NFL so it's not like but I think the concern for Tua is that now he's had two injuries to his ankles he's had injuries to his arm he's had injuries to now his hip he's fragile and you're going to get hit in the NFL and like Lamar Jackson wants to run and do all those things he does you're going to get hit I don't know if Tua can I mean everyone thinks he's I mean he's phenomenal his arm strength is awesome and he's pinpoint accuracy but I just I feel bad for Alabama I feel bad for him and uh, just a ter- but he's now it's, it's a lot of pressure on Matt Jones to take over now he has a Western Carolina this week and then they play Auburn and they might be an underdog against Auburn you know it's funny too it was probably the clear-cut number one quarterback going into this season without throwing a, a single pass he might slip out of the first round now. I, I know that sounds crazy, but there could you could make an argument for three quarterbacks in front of him with these injury issues. Yeah, but whoever takes him, 
them. It could be like someone. Now you're looking at the good teams, like the Patriots. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely, that's who's going to be hanging around, looking to vulture him. If you could go from Brady to healthy Tua, that would be pretty exciting. But it could also be a Steelers second round. You know, second, who knows? Yes. Who knows how this is going to play out? But I, I do feel bad for the kids. Some people are saying he should go back to school for a year. No, no, this no, This is ridiculous. No, 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 no. It's absolutely crazy. Ohio State, you're going to face off with them soon. I knew the line was a little crazy with uh, over 50 points on Rutgers. I would have laid it and would have cashed, but they they still romped. They, uh, the Ohio State, nobody has played within 24, 25 points of Ohio State all year. They're just blowing everybody out, and they're phenomenal. And I, it'll be interesting. I'll see them live on Saturday. Uh, this team looks like uh, Ryan Day, they're the new coach, as I said. They're they're just they're just business. They're just they just they, they don't commit the penalties. They're clinical. There's nothing out. It's just there's no Urban Meyer on the sidelines and the headaches and all the other drama that comes with Urban Meyer. This team is just loaded with talent. They don't make mistakes. And I just can't wait to see. I mean, I hope Penn State like the we're talking about this game. Penn State is going to have to play like two to three levels better than they played all year. Like they're going to have to play the gear. Right. Like I can't imagine like, and Ohio State's not going to make these turnovers that they normally do to let uh, Penn State back in the game. So it's going to be a really challenge. Like uh, Penn State, it's hard for me to envision. The line is 18. It's going to be hard for me to envision what Penn State, like at what level can Penn State play to go into this? What was Penn State up to is the highest ranking this season? Five? Four. Four. So it's right. crazy to think the drop off from two to four is almost three scores. In the Penn State game, KJ Hamler, the star wide receiver, who actually talked to his mother before the game, which was pretty cool. Mother and dad were out in the parking lot tailgating. And <laughs> he, but he got he got knocked out in a concussion returning a punt earlier in the game. And I think that's hurt Penn State during that game. But if he's not healthy, then it's going to be a total disaster because Penn State doesn't seem to have the other wide receivers that can do anything out there. But uh, but Ohio State looks like, look, they have this game and then they have the Michigan game and then the Big Ten championship game. But they, they have a a tougher role. They have three games. Ohio State actually has three competitive games. Clemson has no competitive games. So. Well, Clemson too, and you know, we were just speaking about the, um, you know, quarterbacks. Trevor Lawrence can't come out this year. He was having kind of a, a disappointing, quote, season uh, after winning the national championship, but he looked every part of what they think is going to be the next Peyton Manning in this one. They beat a, a fairly good Wake team. It was seven and two going the game, fifty-two to three. They dominate twenty-six to five on first downs. Uh, they just score at will. Um, they've won their last three, four games by forty-five points. Um, the point I'm going to say about Clemson is. They this this is what they do. I mean, in 2016, they they eked by Troy in September and almost lost to NC State. They got upset by Pitt and they still went on to beat Alabama and win the national title. Like they start getting going. 2017, they lost to Syracuse and struggled during the beginning, but at the end, they only lost to uh, Alabama in the in the in the semifinals. And then last year, they narrowly escaped Texas A&M, but then turned it on and uh, destroyed Notre Dame and Alabama by a combined 36 points. So. Look, Clemson, everyone says they haven't played anybody, and they haven't. But they have Trevor Lawrence, who would be the number one player if he came out this year. They have NFL players at almost every single position. Yeah. And their wide receivers look uh, tremendous. I would say they might be seated like three. I, they To me, this is exactly what you expected Clemson to be doing. They, I think if you're actually Dabo Sweeney, he was happy that they were seated so low. The people said, your schedule's easy. You had a tough you had a loss against North Carolina. You don't look good. It sort of motivated his team. Now they're getting going. It's 730. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's time to bring in Kurt Sampson. He's the author of Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Kurt's Column. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today here on Ira. 
I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Kurt, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, your book, Roaring Back, I read it I read it today, actually. Uh, tremendous book about Tiger Woods. And you don't just talk about the Masters win that he had, where you, what you finished, but also, like when you said Roaring Back, it's like where he was and where he became. And uh, I thought it was like, I think it's like the first definitive account of, 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 of Tiger's comeback uh, of winning the majors and now positioning himself into uh, this year, which everybody's looking forward to. Well, uh, thanks for noticing. Um, yes, I thought this um, latest win for Tiger, uh, that is his Masters win, was deserving of uh, some instant nostalgia. It needed to be memorialized uh, in a way in, in, uh, in ink and paper, um, and I was happy to do it. Um, there was uh, such theater, amazing drama uh, on that Sunday at Augusta. Of course, that's not all the book is about. But I, but it comes back to the Masters because we you mentioned in 1997 for his first win when he beat people forget that he beat Constantino Rocca and I loved how you said he was wearing a club med hat um, when Tiger just dominated the field and, and made his emergence. But you 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 harken you talk about the Masters in terms of the Masters has always not been has been one of the tournaments that has not been welcomed to African Americans and you mentioned Charlie Sifford and the, and the struggles when he actually got on the tour the Masters wouldn't even let him play in that tour and it was it was important for Tiger, not only just to win all these majors, but to win the Masters. I mean, that is his goal. And then to sort of bookend from the 1997 win to the win he had last year, just as like the perfect uh, bookend. You know, Ira, you bring up an interesting point. It's so tricky um, to even talk about the the subject of race. Tiger was a reluctant, uh, and I think partially is still a reluctant uh, avatar of his race. He Remember the tortured uh, uh, phrase he had uh, that he wasn't black, he was Cablinasian for a while. Um, That said, um, uh, he became great friends with Sifford. He uh, has not been uh, shy about what what his wins have meant. Um, And it is terrific. There has been a, uh, had been a racist vibe at Augusta National, I think, Tiger shattered that uh, pretty completely. And the other comparison that you make is with Ben Hogan, and people don't know like who Ben Hogan was. Ben Hogan's considered many as the great one of the, the greatest golfers ever. And Hogan was in the prime of his career, winning tournaments, and was hit by a Greyhound bus uh, while he was driving. And and as you as you write in the book, he, he easily could have just died in the accident, but severely injured, but came back and overcame all these injuries and was able, like almost Tiger Woods like in terms of overcoming the injuries to become the superstar golfer. Again. Again. Yeah, that um, Tiger's uh, and, and Ben Hogan's stories have some uh, some similarities uh, coming back from from the brink. Of course, Hogan faced life threatening uh, uh, injuries, and his sort of iffy public persona and popularity uh, went from um, I don't know respect to outright awe and admiration because at the moment before the bus impacted the, their car, Ben Hogan threw himself in front of his wife, Valerie, uh, shouting, look out, Val. And uh, uh, Valerie at the hospital couldn't stop uh, telling writers that, and it got out quickly. And um, it, it adds a new bit of flavor to, to Hogan's um, hero journey. Tigers was different, though, wasn't it? Um, he was 
this absolute paragon, and then he went to below zero, I'd say, what with the, the scandals, uh, his uh, multiple, multiple um, infidelities. Um, he went from someone that parents wanted their kids to look at and emulate to somebody to turn away from. He was the butt of jokes on late-night TV. He came back from a, uh, an amazingly dark place. Uh, I, my hat is off to him. He overcame that that um, ridicule and, and laughter, which must have stung him deeply. So, and I thought it was interesting. You, you really harped on the 2010 Masters, which was his last with working with uh, swing coach Hank Haney, and about how that fell apart at, after 2010. This was post-scandal, post-everything, and he's back there. And then uh, uh, Steve Williams, that was the uh, starting to be the end of uh, uh, of his catting with Tiger. And then Tiger really changes almost his entire team and, and, and sort of was searching for, like, Sean Foley, and, and now he's... Without a coach, but 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 Joe Lacava, who's the, the 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 caddy, his caddy now, and I've seen Tiger play Genesis this year, the U.S. Open. I've saw him at uh, at at the U.S. Open and the PGA Championships, and I think uh, Lacava is is just a phenomenal caddy for him. I mean, a calming influence. It's just totally different uh-huh. than when Steve Williams was the caddy, and I I think it really fits Tiger what Tiger is right now. You know, I, that's interesting. I I hope you're right. Um, Steve was. Uh, I hope I can say this word on your radio, but he was such a pain in the ass. He was so much like a nightclub bouncer of a, of a caddy. Um, um, uh, someone who, um, for the least infraction or no infraction at all, he was likely to go into the gallery and, uh, and, and speak loudly and impolitely to that person who, for, who were for potentially bothering his, his client. Joe's vibe, as you point out, is, is calm and uh, mellow, and it was this brand of uh, mellowness that I thought I detected um, in the most recent Masters. I watched the tape of the entire tournament many times. Not only did Tiger not swear that I saw, and he's infamous for laying out some F-bombs, he didn't even mutter as he was coming off uh, greens after not making a putt, and that's we've just seen him do that forever. So he had achieved some sort of great uh, mental state. Uh, it re- was really, I'm sure, a big factor in him winning the most recent Masters. Well, and, and we're going to jump to the most recent Masters, um, and we're talking to Kurt Sampson, the author of Roaring Back, uh, uh, the book about Tiger Woods and, and his comeback in the in the this past year's Masters. But he's against Molinari, uh, Finau, uh, Brooks Kepka. I mean, it was like when you're watching, it's like everyone, it was almost a battle royal. I mean, another wrestling analogy. It's almost battle royal in terms of everybody's coming after Tiger. They're taking the lead and everyone's hitting the ball in the water. But I was interested in a quote that he said. He goes, he could hear, he knew which, where the roars were coming from and he knew where, he knew who was on the hole. So he sort of, even though the score, he didn't see what the scores were, he had a feeling where he was compared to the other golfers. Yeah, it was interesting to hear him talk about this. His, uh, by far, the best interview he's ever given, in my opinion, was the one he gave with Henny Zool of uh, Golf TV in the aftermath of this win. It was so uncharacteristically informative, um, as good as anything Jack Nicholas ever did, um, and that's according to Jerry Tardy, the um, um, the editor in chief of, of Golf Digest. So, yeah, that's. That's a very 
cunning uh, competitor, isn't it, that um, has his uh, auditory um, signals, uh, that he's calibrating those, uh, where the roar comes from, the character of the roar. Does that mean a birdie or a bogey or even an eagle? Um, so it was, it was great theater, um, and Tiger was totally lucky to win because a couple of other guys uh, lost it as much as Tiger won it. Well, do you think it's the intimidation factor? I mean, a lot has been saying is that there is no Tiger effect, that these young golfers aren't as intimidated as the people back 10, 12 years ago with Tiger. Um, there might be not as much intimidation factor, but his clear his knowledge of these courses, especially the Masters and how to play golf, and as long as he has his physical skills, it gives him such an advantage over these other golfers. You know, Ira, I think the guys played 84 competitive rounds at, uh, in the Masters. That's a lot. At his uh, practice rounds, his whatever, informal rounds during the year, uh, that's practically his home course. Uh, he, he knows how to play that thing. And while I don't think that fellow competitors worry about what he's doing over much um, in the heat of battle, um, boy, what, a, what an advantage it is for Tiger to, to um, be such a cool hand uh, because he knows the shots he needs to hit from uh, A to Z there. And you gave a lot of credit to Richard Geyer, Dr. Geyer, in your book about the spinal fusion surgery he had in April 2017. And the quotes where Tiger was telling Nick Faldo and other people, like, I think I'm done. Like, I, I'm not going to play. And you, you pulled up a bunch of these quotes about him uh, because, and you mentioned how the surgery, you're lucky, did not have pain, let alone to be able to have your motion back that you can actually swing a golf club. Yeah, he had pain at first, of course, and that's... Um um, you, um, everyone remembers the DUI and the D, DUI photograph. Um, like, all, like a lot of back pain sufferers, um, Tiger was a user of um, some opioid or, or other um, uh, to treat his back uh, pain before the surgery and after. And then uh, there on that night, he <clears throat> it, it was just a loud signal about how poorly he was feeling, how much pain he was in. Um, physically and psychically, too, I think, given that five or six um, combination uh, drug cocktail. That's another aspect of the comeback. I, I think, uh, at least I feel no uh, animosity or judgment of, toward Tiger about the DUI. Of course, he endangered himself and other motorists, but it was such a, a loud shout of how badly the poor guy felt um, and that's a, a, another little piece of the puzzle uh, that makes his comeback so interesting yeah I mean that's what's what's amazing about Tiger is that uh he has, I think that what I was thinking about golf is he's been around for so long and you're not going to get people in their mid to late forties still playing basketball and maybe Tom Brady with football to some extent, but generally yeah, we right. don't have that. And if he can still have all his abilities and if he's healthy enough to play and use the intelligence that he has, we're going to have like, that's where it's all going to come together and he's going to be able to win these tournaments. And, and you saw what happened in Japan. I mean, there's a tournament that no one, he was like, no one thought he had a chance to do anything and he ends up winning out of nowhere and I think that's what it comes back when whenever you think he's down whenever you think he but if he's feeling good and he and he understands the course and understands how to play right that he's he's going to win that tournament uh, it, it is um, um, a testament um, among other things to Tiger's work ethic nobody 
has ever rehabbed harder <laughs> post-surgery than, uh, than Tiger did. Um, he really worked very hard. Um, the, the doctors were amazed at um, how much range of motion he recovered. That said, though, Ira, it's a ticking time bomb. Uh, arthritis is inevitable in his lower back now and uh, diminished uh, flexibility. It's just in his future. Um, he's 44. It's not going to get better. So we're talking to Kurt Sampson, uh, I guess the the author of Roaring Back, uh, a story about Tiger Woods. Um, the question is, is do you, uh, that everyone wants to know, is, is he going to hit 18? Is he going to win three more majors? Can he win three more majors? Is it possible? Uh, what's your opinion about that? <laughs> My crystal ball is a little hazy on that, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, he has done so well at Augusta National, uh, and, and his home course advantage, so to speak, is so um, so superior to that of anyone else. He could win. Uh, he could win at Augusta again. I, I really think so for the next year or two. Um, I think the back is going to limit him after that. I don't see him winning um, a U.S. Open, which is going to be too long, or a British Open, which could be cold and uh, and wet, which is horrible for. Um, guys with uh, with back pain. Um, I, I really like his chances at, at Augusta this year again. Wow, that would be exciting. But, uh, well, Kerr, well, thank you. You're author of Roaring Back. The, you, you call it the, the fall and rise of Tiger Woods. And uh, you've also wrote uh, the book called The Masters and on book on Ben Hogan. So uh, it's certainly one of the premier golf writers out there. And I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Uh, nice of you to say, Ira, I had a ball. Thanks for having me on. It's 7.44. Ira on sports. You can follow Kurt uh, on Twitter at Kurt's Column. Uh, uh, Tiger's going to be the, the odds-on favorite in Vegas for the Masters, don't you think, as long as he's healthy? Uh, well, I saw. I think Brooks is still the – I saw somewhere where really? Brooks and Rory. It's going to be – it's like they're, 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 they're close. We're getting excited for April already here yes. <laughs> on Ira on sports. You wanted to talk a little bit more college, right, before we hop into the yes. NFL. Yes. Um, we, you know, we're talking about earlier about how Tua's injury is going to propel some other quarterbacks up the board. Justin Herbert now, um, he's had a kind of a tumultuous season, but he looked really good against Arizona. Oregon won 34-6 over Arizona, and Utah won 49-3 over UCLA. And people are saying, well, what, we're worried about – why are we talking? Because they have one loss, and they're if they just win – one more game each. I mean, they're going to there are two more games each. They'll meet in the Pac-12 championship game, and I think that's. It seems like when you look at the polls and look at how the college football playoff committee is looking at them, they're viewing Oregon and you, Oregon especially as uh, ranked higher than Oklahoma and Baylor. So Herbert has a chance to they be that fourth team if that happens to get in the playoff. And we're going to go ahead and say Utah's kind of <laughs> factored out of this, even even though they. I still winning. think no. I I think Utah if they beat Oregon, I think that's the win. I think people are viewing. Oregon. So if Utah fought, played Oregon, like I think they need both each other to each team to win. But I think if Utah beat Oregon, then they would just still have a chance to get in. What about uh, Minnesota and Iowa? This one was uh, we were well, that was the to... under the two undefeated lost. Yeah. The Minnesota and the Baylor they both lost to Iowa, and, and winning in Iowa is difficult. Uh, Tanner Morgan, uh, this whole story about Minnesota has been phenomenal. But Iowa's a great team, and uh, they just got down twenty to six to Iowa. And Iowa just played good defense and hung on, hung on. But now in two weeks, Minnesota plays at Wisconsin. And the winner of that game goes to the Big Ten championship game. Let's talk about Florida for a minute. You've been talking. Do you like Kyle Trask for a while now? He looked good again. Uh, 23-6 over Missouri. Um, it was interesting. Missouri's quarterback is Kelly Bryant, who used to be the quarterback at Clemson. Uh, but 
Florida's a team that if they're going to finish the season the way they do, they they are probably going to be in the Orange Bowl. They're going to be. In a, I mean, they're going to have finished with ten and two, a good season, uh, and I think it sets up great for next year because they have a great recruiting class coming in. They've got a couple of uh, first round picks leaving yes, as uh, well, though. Um, Wisconsin and Nebraska. Well, just that Jonathan Taylor, who no one talks about, and who's probably going to be in New York, had again. He has now more yards than any other running back in the history of college football through three seasons. Now we'll probably go pro. Mm-hmm. So, but he passed Herschel. Walker, but he was 204 yards rushing, and it's going to be great. This, as I said, Ohio State has the Penn State game, then they have, and then if they get through, they have Michigan, and then if they have to play Wisconsin in the Big Ten Championship game, that's going to be a challenge. Um, Michigan it keeps on rolling, and Harbaugh's had a good day. Well, <laughs> Michigan over Michigan State, uh, people, everyone wants to fire them, and suddenly we've had off. We had t- talked about Michigan a lot, but now they look like they're going to go into that Michigan Ohio with like with uh, nine wins. So, D- did it end up happening? They said uh, Notre Dame was going to lose their I sellout find out. streak. I yeah, couldn't I didn't find see out. Anything. They didn't report it. I think Notre Dame <laughs> kept it covered. Two hundred fifty-three straight. I think. Um, that's crazy. The, I think the record is is Nebraska actually three hundred fifty yes. something. So it's crazy. To but think a lot about. of those schools cook the books on the uh, whole thing. So. I mean, the Miami Marlins were selling out all their games. <laughs> when they, no, nobody was there. Good point. I. Um, so so what are we looking at for for next week? Well, I think what's what's going on is this. Uh, this is what's happening in the playoffs. LSU has Arkansas, and then they play Texas A&M. I feel bad for Texas A&M. They have to play at LSU and at Georgia in the next two weeks. But if LSU can maneuver this in, I think LSU's even in with a loss. Like, I think LSU has set themselves up that they're in, no matter what. As long as they're, yeah. they, they lose, they're going to be in. If Georgia beats LSU, Georgia's going to be in. There's no way if they have, as long as Georgia beats Texas A&M. But if Georgia has one loss and they win the SEC championship game, I think they're in. Ohio State is in. Ohio State, as long as they keep winning their games, of course they're in. And I, the question is, if Ohio State, can they take one loss and still get in? Clemson is in. Clemson has to play uh, at South Carolina. It'll be like 35-point favorites. They're off this week. They Then the 35-point favorites. Then they play the ACC title game. It's UVA, Virginia Tech. They'll be a 30- to 40-point favorite in that game. So <laughs> just put Clemson in. The question is, will they be seated like second or third or one? It doesn't really matter between two or three, but – it's a situation where Clemson could play like an Ohio State as a 2-3 and LSU might face an Oregon. But then it gets to that fourth position, and that's where we talked about the Oklahoma-Baylor winner against the Oregon-Utah and who's going to get that fourth. Because I really think at this point Alabama is not going to get in. Without two as a quarterback, you're not going to look at Alabama and say Alabama is that fourth team. And I, I feel bad now if Matt Jones looks great against Auburn and these other teams lose. I mean, Alabama can still get in because there could be upsets. Everything happens in college football. It's crazy. So that it's never say never, but I think it's not looking good for Alabama in terms of what they're trying to do. I want Alabama not in because I want them to expand this to eight teams already. And the faster we have great teams like Alabama not make it, the sooner we're going to see them uh, expand on this. What, what's this week? Uh, well, this week is just the Penn State-Ohio State game. Uh, Ohio State's favored by 18. Texas is at Baylor. Baylor's favored by five. Um, I mean, that would be interesting. If, say, Texas beat Baylor this week, and then Baylor went and beat Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game, and that way, then uh, uh, the, everybody would have two losses, and that would be eliminated. Uh, and then also, Texas A&M's at Georgia at 330. That's another the other issue mm-hmm. that if Georgia, what if Texas A&M now Georgia's favored by 14 in that game? Uh, LSU's favored by 45 on Arkansas. That's nothing. <laughs> but Oregon and Oregon's favored by 16 over Arizona State and Utah's favored by 22 over Arizona. But those teams, so as I said, it's, you're looking at that fourth team in the playoffs. There's four teams. I really think it's going to be, if I didn't predict anyone, I think Oregon beats Utah and I think Oregon gets that over Oklahoma. 750, Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Let's go to football, Ira. Um, Let's just talk for one second. I just want your opinion on Colin Kaepernick. It's the most talked about 
non-athlete, uh, you know, in the world of sports. Uh, what's your thoughts uh, on this whole well, situation? Well, I mean, everyone spent this whole weekend. I mean, there's all these great football games that we're talking about, and everybody wants to talk about Colin Kaepernick and what he was supposed to have a workout. The league actually set a facility in Atlanta on Saturday. Uh, they're indoor for the Falcons, and they had 24 teams coming. And within an hour before they're supposed to have this workout, he decided to go work out at a high school facility with high school players when they actually had call. They had very good receivers, and they had Hugh Jackson was going to run the drills, and it was and all these teams showed up in Atlanta for this. Um, look, if he wants to, you show up there. It's great. The NFL doesn't do this for anybody else. And he no wants sport to cl- does it for anyone. Nobody. <laughs> I mean, nobody would do it for a single and, – and if they want to say collusion, there's no collu- – I don't think these teams are calling each other up. It's like if you want to have them, they could just sign them. And they were just putting them together trying to help them get this job. But there's no collusion. They just – there's a lot of great play- – there's a lot of great football players that can't play in the NFL. It's very exclusive in terms of playing there. And these teams don't view him as good enough to play. And if he is – if they say, well, you could be the second or third quarterback, they don't want the distraction of him. There, so there's a reason why, but I don't think there's collusion. But I think if Colin Kaepernick, I mean, wanted to show that he could play in the NFL, he would have gone to this, had a great workout, and then position himself. But as Stephen A. Smith, as other people say, he just—I just think he just wants to have the drama of this and not actually play quarterback in the NFL. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, so Ira, I've been picking pretty well this season. I was 11 and two this week um, against the spread. This one I did not see coming at all. I thought Houston and Baltimore was going to be that game like last year's Rams and Chiefs, where where these you know this this great game going down to the wire and Baltimore just wiped the floor with them the entire game. Well, they went up to fourteen nothing, and they were sacking Watson. Deshaun Watson never not scored a point in the first half. Unbelievable! First time ever. Unbelievable! And they had five sacks. I mean, I think the story of the line was the, the two things about this game is that uh, the Ravens' defense was tremendous. I mean, Marcus yeah. Peters was a John, John Dre Hopkins, who's one of the best wide receivers in the league, just could not say, get separation from him on many plays. Watson was running for his life, got sacked five times. The, the Ravens' defense was great, and Lamar Jackson just was able to keep running. Seventeen for twenty-four, two hundred twenty-four yards, four touchdowns, nine carries. For 86 yards. I mean, I said they were up 14 nothing, and then you're like, okay, it's close. The first half, the the the, the Texans are going to come back and play well in the in the in third quarter. 21 nothing, 28 nothing. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> it was tremendous. I mean, the Raven. I'm now they've had two great wins over the Patriots and uh, and the Texans in back to back weeks. Uh, the Ravens look like they're for real. Now I think to beat the Ravens, I think what the teams are doing, and I saw what the Patriots did. I was at, at that game. Is I I really think you have to send someone at Jackson. You have to view him as an option quarterback. And I think teams are letting him just have so much time decide is he going to run, is he going to throw, and but I. Like, I think they play the football right. I mean, his throws are smart to tight ends. Like, they're doing what I said what the Cleveland doesn't do. It's they get the third downs. They work the field. Mm-hmm. They have eight-minute drives. They 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 just— they, Yeah, they the running they're, game's good. They're not trying on third and, and seven to throw 50-yard bombs. They're just trying to go down the field, and then they break the runs for the long runs, and Jackson's hard to tackle. They play smart, but I really think on defense you have to go right at him. I think teams are just setting back and letting him do what he wants. I think uh, you have to go and try to treat him like an option quarterback and get the ball out of his hands earlier. Let's uh, let's talk about New Orleans and Tampa. It's an NFC South matchup. I don't know, Ira. It, maybe it's just me, but I think that Jameis Winston is wore out as welcome in, in Tampa. Well, <laughs> I just, I mean, he had 51 attempts and four interceptions. I mean, it was, it was, how about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers threw the ball 51 times? They only ran the ball eight times. Eight Crazy. times. Like how, like, how do they expect it? And I just... <laughs> 
uh, just a mess. And, and I think New Orleans, though, I'm, last week they lost to Atlanta, and people were like, what happened? And I think every year New Orleans has one of these games. I mean, I remember when they lost to yeah. Giants a couple years ago, but they just didn't play well. But Breeze looked fantastic. Camaro, back, amazing. And Michael Thomas, my MVP. I'm going to say this again and again. Michael Thomas, I think, is, I mean, it's Lamar <laughs> Jackson. I, he's, he is the first, he is now has 94 receptions for 1,141 yards. He's the first person to ever have 90 catches in the first 10 games. I mean, he is great. And they didn't even have their star quarterback for five games. He's been tremendous. Kamara's great. Breeze is great. And uh, Tampa Bay, they're going to have a problem with it. I mean, Winston, I don't know what. I mean, Winston seems like to be, he's like that borderline starter backup. Like, it's going to be weird. Like, you have all these quarterbacks like Ryan Tannehill and Blake Bortles that are starters. Mm -hmm. You don't see them being backups. And Winston could be a Mitch Trubisky. Like, all these quarterbacks we talk about all the time, like in two years, they could just be backups on teams. I, I think Jameis would get one more shot on some team that's desperate. And then, yeah, he's just going to go be a backup. Um, Dak Prescott looks good. This season, he looks really good. He looked good in this game. If I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, though, I'm a little bit worried that you let Detroit hang around this much on, you know, second-string quarterback. Jeff Driscoll uh, and Detroit, just, yeah, they were second-string quarterback, second-string running, fourth-string running back. So yeah. Bo Scarborough was a running back, and he was just signed right off of the practice squad. Uh, but Dallas, da I like Dak Prescott a lot. I mean, I watched that entire He's game. He's a winner. I had all the games on. He... As like we talk about Mason Rudolph, when he gets pressure and there's people hanging all over him, he's like Ben Rotzenberger. He's a big, strong guy. He keeps looking down the field. He doesn't fumble the ball. He holds the ball and he gets and he makes a smart play. And I think he and he's looking better and better every week. I'm sick and tired of talking about his contract. Of course he's going to get paid. If people say, "Oh, we should get paid," who, whatever, they're going to pay him yeah. whether it's thirty million or twenty-seven million. Nobody cares. What they care about is that he plays great. And and but they got to get this defense fixed because they can't give up twenty-seven points to Detroit. No, not a not a Matthew Stafford list Detroit. Um, Jets and Redskins, it, good looking game from Sam Darnold, and you know a, another very lackluster performance from Dwayne Haskins. But again, I don't really know. It, 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 is it is it good to say Sam Darnold is turning the corner against a, a bad Redskins team? I, I don't know what to make of this. The only reason I wanted to talk about this game was I was in Washington, and it's like they, 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 now the headlines of all the papers are the Redskins have lost the town. Like the, now the Wizards are terrible, but the the Nationals winning the World Series have really like this was a Redskins yeah. town for the years Capitals and too, and, must and, be. and it's and and there was like nobody at the game. Supposedly I heard there was like fifteen. 20,000 people showed up at the at RFK or FedEx field and they brought in Haskins who's the, they finally are starting the rookie and from Ohio State and he looked awful he did not look now I know it's just one of the second game that he started but he didn't look good and it's just it's a really bad situation the Redskins are now one and nine their worst start since 1961 which is a long <laughs> time ago it's not good um I had, a, I had a really good feeling that the uh, Buffalo Bills were going to bounce back and stomp on Miami, and that's what we saw happen. But I got to give credit to Brian Flores. He's getting the most. These guys want to play hard. They want to play for him. I, I, of course. I mean, that's what – every time you thought the Bills were just going to just run away with it. I mean, they always the, – the, the Dolphins' defense comes up and stops them and forces a uh, field goal instead of a touchdown. They run back a kick for a touchdown. Uh, they're, they're hustling. They're trying. I mean, it was – I was really impressed. I mean, I really think – you know, the Dolphins, they rushed for 23 yards. They really can't do much on offense. But they're, they're, they hang in there. I mean, they scored 20 points. I mean, they're, they're getting – they're losing the games, but they have two wins, and that was two wins. <laughs> 
than most anyone thought. And I thought they're playing hard. I think, look, Brian Flores gets, gets a lot of credit for a guy that's coaching a two-win team. Uh, they look like they're fighting. As opposed to, I think, the Jets. You can look at the Jets and the Redskins and the Bengals. Some of these games, they look terrible. Uh, the Dolphins look like they're trying every single game. You could tell. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they look like they're trying. This team has worse personnel than any team in the league. They're worse than, than Cincinnati. They're worse than the Redskins. So the fact that they even have two wins is pretty amazing. Um, Ira, what were we saying before the show? Is there like a wake-up call to Atlanta? Did they not know the season started uh, 10 weeks ago? Well, I mean, the Atlanta was 2-7, and seven and, and they— uh, right. I mean, they, they were having one of the worst years. With I mean, they were at the, the Super Bowl. The defense was terrible. Defense is terrible. Matt Ryan was doing nothing. They have all Tolio Jones, Calvin Ridley, Duante Freedom. I mean, they have loaded with talent. And they're like, how are they losing? And finally, they, they beat New Orleans last week. And they came and they destroyed Carolina this week. Uh, and it, a bad loss for Carolina because we talked about Minnesota's win, giving them eight wins. Now Carolina's goes to five and five. You don't want to be three games back with six to go. And that was a huge—it just probably killed their, their playoff hopes in this loss. Yeah. Good job by the uh, um, Atlanta to kind of snub out their two NFC South opponents here in back-to-back weeks. Kind right. of set and them Kyle, back. And, and like Kyle Allen, who had was sort of like a magic carpet He's ride at quarterback, he had four interceptions, so he yeah. didn't play well. And that was, but I, I, it's like, where did this Atlanta? Like, this is the Atlanta team that we all thought was going to happen, and they finally, like, what would they been doing for the first two months of the year? And I think Dan Quinn is saving his job with this too. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, because I think they were ready to run him out of town. So if they got blown out by in these last two weeks, he'd probably be uh, getting rolled out. Jacksonville and Indianapolis. Nick Foles is back, and it looks like regular season Nick Foles to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't play well. And, and, and Indianapolis, this was a, a must win for them to go up 6-4 and four because they want to hold on to that, that playoff spot. Uh, but Jacoby Brissett came, and it was it was a weird game. I mean, I just felt like they just – that the uh, Jacksonville, again, they were a mess in offense. They had the same problem with the Bucks. They had 47 passes and only nine runs. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, who, these teams are going – and they weren't, like, losing that much in the game. It was a, clo- it was a tight game You're early. You're a running team, too. Yes, and they're a running team, and you have less Fournette, and you and you just get. I think some of these offense coordinators are just getting into passing, 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 and they just they just have uh, give up on the run too early. I, I didn't think it'd be the game of the week, but it was very, very exciting. Denver and Minnesota. Well, Denver jumped out to a twenty nothing lead, and they almost had this game won because at the end of the first half, uh, Minnesota fumbled the ball and on a on a on a punt, and they and Denver got it, but Denver could not convert. If they would have scored there and they got up twenty seven nothing, that might have been the end of the game. But Minnesota and Kirk Cousins, boy, they battled back making big plays to Stefan Diggs. His 54-yard touchdown was tremendous. And then they took the lead with uh, Kyle Rudolph, uh, 27-23. But um, teams were 0 for 99 when trailing by 20 <laughs> at the half, and they still came back and, and won. So it was, it was a big-time win for, for Minnesota. And that win, that to get them the eight wins at least puts them, I think, in the playoffs because I said that the other teams are, now the Rams are at six wins, but they're two games above as, as for the last wild card spot. Um, New England and Philly, this game, it was closer on paper than it was in real life. And I, the more I see Carson Wentz, the more I'm convinced he's not the player he was when he was going to be, quote, MVP when he got hurt. No, I mean, it, the last drive when he was coming down, first of all, they got up to the 10 nothing lead, and the Patriots, the Patriots struggling. They have no wide receivers. I'm giving Tom, I mean, people are criticizing Tom Brady until the cows come home, and the cows have come home, and they're still criticizing him. But, they, <laughs> but Brady was uh, 26 for 47, 216 yards. But... Edelman does not get like he's not. There's slot receivers. Dorsett's slot receivers. Like they are just they, these are slot receivers. They're, Sony Michelle is not running the ball well. Their offensive line is a mess. And Brady's just keeping them in the game, making the big plays, doing the drive they have to do. And uh, and I just think that it's been it was 
it was it was one of those games where they they, they were they when they actually scored when the Patriots went and and went for two and made that 17-10 that was key to get that two point conversion. But the Eagles had their chances and, and on that four, they went like they got down to like the thirty yard line and three straight times went through through an incomplete pass. Now on the final one they say Aguilar dropped the ball, but there were the two plays before that I thought Wentz just threw bad throws. Um, Cincinnati and the Raiders. Got to be happier for a Raiders fan in the wide open AFC. They got a shot here at being a playoff team. A great shot. They're six and four. Derek Carr, I mean, Gruden now is in coaching. He likes his team. I mean, you see the passion. Mm-hmm. And Josh Jacobs at the running back is going to be rookie of the year. But Derek Carr, I mean, this is a team that is like gearing up. And so, I mean, it's like we, we talked about this before. The whole Antonio Brown drama, hard knocks, everything about that, that's all gone now. Now they're just playing football and winning. And you have to beat a team. Like when you go against a team like Cincinnati, that's you just got to win those. Those are like uh, the uh, those are like the birdie holes in golf. <laughs> um, so... I don't know if, if I'd call the word concerned, but if I'm Seattle, I mean, um, San Francisco, coming off a loss in division, now allowing Arizona, um, your other division rival, to score 26 points on you when you're supposed to be the best defense in the league, do you a little worried here if you're a Niners fan? Look, it was a great game. They won 36-26, but as they, they talk about the backdoor cover as a final play where Arizona turned the ball over yeah. and that messed everybody betting. And But the Niners scored. Uh, they were down three, and they scored a touchdown to Wilson. His only time in the game. Uh, Garoppolo threw a pass. Now, Garoppolo... I think the problem I have with him when I watched him play against the Rams, he turns the ball over. He doesn't hold the ball tight. I've seen him t- uh, uh, twice in person, and I've seen him fumble two times each game, and he made uh, turnovers this game, too. I think that's the problem. It's not just the interceptions. It's just the fumbles when he gets hit. But, look, they were injured. Kittles was out. They were missing two offensive linemen, a bunch of people on defense. That was a good win for them. I really think after coming back after a Monday night loss, I, I give them credit. And Kyler Murray looks good. I mean, no one's talking yeah, yeah, about he him. Does. Like he as he's this is his rookie year. Like he's like he's playing well. He's like playing really good. I like I like Kyler Murray, and I just don't think people are talking because it's Arizona and they play at different times and nobody sees them and they're not on TV. But I think Kyler Murray is. I can't wait for next year. You, you see, like his arm is just as good as Lamar Jackson's arm, and I and he's just as elusive. If it wasn't for the size, we'd be talking about him a lot more. Maybe that does get him negative press, but you're right. What he's done this season is nothing short of remarkable for for a rookie. Um, uh, real quick, how's the uh, scenario look for the uh, for the rest of the season and the playoffs? Well, I just think that the AFC, the Pats, the Ra- Pats are nine and one. The Ravens are eight and two. The Pats have to keep winning because they want to have that championship game they there. Do. And the Colts and Texans are six and four. The Chiefs and Raiders are six and four. But that means that with the Bills at seven three in the wild card, like everybody's in the mix. Like if you're at five and five, like the Steelers and the Titans and the Chargers, the Jacksonville's are four and six. You're, you're, you're only two games out now, so you still have a chance. So it's lo- sort of like everybody's in the mix. We'll see what happens. The NFC is borderline almost over because with the Vikings at 8-3 and three and Seattle at 8-2, and two, if you don't, the teams like the Rams at 6-4, and four, they're two games back. And the Eagles, they're 5-5 five and five with Cowboys 6-4. and four. The Eagles are, are three games out. And Giants, Redskins, Bears, Lions, Panthers, Falcons, Bucks, Arizona, they're all finished. So it's weird how you can be 5-5 five and five in the AFC and like, I'm in the playoffs. Five and five in the NFC. You're out. <laughs> I'm not going to be surprised though if the Eagles manage to slide in. They still have uh, the Giants and the Redskins, plus the Dolphins and the Bang. I think the Bengals on their schedule. So that should be four wins realistically. But so that's why tonight's game in Mexico City, KC and San Diego. 
uh, San Diego is four and six. They still might be in there at five and six, so they still have a chance. And, and Kansas City wants to win this because if they lose this game, they're not even going to be leading the division, and the Raiders are going to take the division. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, that AFC West has been uh, crazy all, all season long. Uh, Ira, we've probably talked about it for a combined about four minutes on this show in the past couple of years. NASCAR, let's talk about it. I just want to say, Kyle Busch won the championship. So it's the second championship that he won. And I think with NASCAR, I think it's a huge mistake. I'm not the biggest car racing fan, but I do watch it every now and then. And they got to, they cannot have their final championship on, like there's 30,000 TVs of NFL football and then in the corner on a small TV, there's a NASCAR race. They got to end it in the summer because they're really not going against anybody else. I have no idea why they run these races now. And uh, and, and Bush is a, is, a, is a star. He's with the second title. And and now the Gibbs, Joe Gibbs racing, which people remember Joe Gibbs because he used to be the coach of the Redskins. He's probably more successful now, even, <laughs> even as an owner of cars. They won 19 out of 36 races this year. But the point is that they have this new platform at NASCAR is not as excited, not as popular as it used to be. But you got to end the season in August. Take a take a, a page out of golf's book. Like we're not going to fight golf with the NFL. Said, golf said we're done before Labor Day, and that's what it is. And throw these other things, but again, just seed it. I mean, you have all like put put two races in a week. Like I don't understand why NASCAR sometimes they can't race sometimes two races in a week to try to get their schedule. <laughs> it's a good I'm point. not so like race on a Wednesday or Tuesday night. It's the middle of August, middle of July. People would go out to these things. Why are they putting it in, in October when you have college football? Like it's in the South, but you have college football on Saturday, you have pro football on Sunday. Nobody can go. That's why the attendance at these tracks are terrible. Uh, just real quick. Ira, what's going on in tennis? Well, they, this is another. Why they have the World Ch- this Championships match, it's really you know, the majors or whatever, but this is supposedly the championship match. They take the top eight players of the world and Tsitsipas of Greece beat theme. Uh, it's, they have a round robin where they play round, they play uh, three matches during the week and then on the Saturday and Sunday are the semifinals and finals. Uh, the big thing is that there were some good matches. Actually, I watched some of this. It was excellent. Uh, Nadal uh, versus uh, Medvedev, a rematch mm-hmm. of the U.S. Open, and, and uh, Nadal ended up winning. It was, it was a great match. But Nadal finished. It made him the way they finished. He finished number one for the year. So Nadal was one, Djokovic two. And there won't be tennis now until the Australian Open in January. But it was this is another tournament. I don't know where they could put it, but it's, they play it in Europe. And it's, uh, it was, anyway, it was Titsipat's one. We are out of time. I want to thank Kurt Sampson, author of Roaring Bat, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. So much for stopping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.